Let me invite you to take your Bibles and join us in the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew, chapter 10. We continue our series this Sunday and next on the 12th. We are considering the lives of the 12 apostles or disciples, and we consider the entire list in our reading together this morning. This is Matthew's list of the 12, as we have said many times in this series. There are four lists like this, only different in the scripture. Matthew, Mark, and Luke have a list, and the book of Acts has a list. John does not have a list, though he mentions nine of the 12 disciples by name in various constructs. Today we consider James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who is called the Zealot, and Thaddeus. We'll read beginning in verse 1, Matthew chapter 10. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal every disease and every affliction. The names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother. James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Philip and Bartholomew. Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector. James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus. Simon, the Canaanian, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We will save Judas to next Sunday. Today we consider the last three, or rather the three of the last four, James, the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Thaddeus. And we'll follow the same pattern we have thus far, just to give you a few details about these men and then try to make application as to their lives. What do we know about James, the son of Alphaeus? The answer is the same for all three of these men today. We know virtually nothing. Uh, the, of the four lists that detail their names, in the case of James and Simon, we know only their names. There is a reference to a question that Thaddeus asks of the Lord in the Gospel of John that we shall see momentarily. So Thaddeus speaks one time in the Scripture, and these other men speak not at all. So we know virtually nothing about them specifically. We know much about them generally. In Mark 2, we, know, we learn that uh, this particular man, James, is the son of Alphaeus. The son of Alphaeus. And again, that would be of uh, little concern to us or little matter to us, except that the Scripture tells us that Levi is also the son of Alphaeus. Now, the question that begs asking that the Bible does not answer, and any answer is mere speculation, so I'm admitting speculation. The question is, is this yet another brother pair? Is this man called James the brother of Matthew Levi, also the son of a man named Alphaeus? What we don't know is whether that Alphaeus is this Alphaeus. We do know that Jesus already has two brothers amongst his 12 disciples, Peter and Andrew, James and John. So it is not 
without precedent that Jesus would call these men as brothers. However, in the case of the first two sets of brothers, Peter and Andrew, James and John, the Bible is quick to tell us they are brothers. In the case of Levi, the son of Alphaeus, and James, the son of Alphaeus, the Bible nowhere says they are brothers. So it is a complete reach to suggest they are. But we do want to note that both of them have fathers named Alphaeus. How popular is the name Alphaeus these days? Can't say as I know any of them. Don't know the first. But in those days, at least two men, if not one, are named Alphaeus. In Mark 15, you might want to turn there with me. This is another passage, Mark chapter 15. You'll note that he is identified by another phrase. This is verse 40, Mark 15, verse 40. Jesus has been crucified and there are women gathered around. You'll remember that the Bible details that the disciples, in this case, the three men we're considering today, James, Simon, and Thaddeus, are nowhere to be found at the crucifixion. They have scattered out of fear. They're not there. But these women are there. There's an entirely different sermon that I would love to preach one day about the importance of women to the ministry of Christ. In fact, I'll give you a a little uh, leader into that. Without the women around Jesus, there would be no Messiah. We would not know Jesus in the manner in which we know Jesus had it not been for the ministry of women. The, The ministry of women is no small thing in the New Testament. And yet, for the most part, they are unnamed. But these ladies are named. So here they are, verse 40, Mark 15. There were also women looking on from a distance, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and here's not the son of Alphaeus, but James the younger in the ESV translation. Other translations say James the lesser. Uh, We'll finish the verse. Mary, the mother of James the younger, and of Joseph and Salome. When he was in Galilee, they followed him and ministered to him. And there were also many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. Those many other women are unnamed. But at least these three women are named. Now you will note that there are several names in the New Testament that are very popular. Jesus' name is not one of them in the New Testament, but Jesus was a very common name. Uh, the word, the name Jesus means Jehovah saves, so that is not an unfamiliar name and would have been a common name or a relatively common name. You'll note that Joseph is a very common name. This name here translated Joseph in verse 40 is actually a derivation of the name Joseph. Joseph, a very common name in the New Testament. James, the man that we're considering now, the son of Alphaeus, here called James the Younger, is a very common name. There are five men in the New Testament named James, five different men. So you've got to sort of follow the bouncing ball uh, to know which James we're talking about. But you'll note here that he's called James the Younger. That particular word in the language of the Bible translated younger can also mean smaller or little. 
Some have referred to him as the younger James. Perhaps he is younger. He is certainly uh, different or to be distinguished from James, the brother of John, the two sons of thunder. He's not the same James. They are differentiating. It could mean that he is diminutive. He's smaller. James the little, if you will. James certainly, he is different. So we also know that he, by this passage in Mark chapter 15, that he is the son of Mary, that his mother's name was Mary. Now there's another name that's very popular in the New Testament. Interesting here, there is Mary Magdalene and there is Mary, the mother of James, the younger. We know that he is the son of Mary and the brother of Joseph or Joseph. And that is all we know. James, the son of Alphaeus. Come back to him in a moment. Now let's consider Simon. I'm going to jump over. I'm going to go return back to Matthew chapter 10. I'm going to jump over Thaddeus for a moment because Thaddeus actually has a quote in the New Testament, so I'll save him for last. Simon the Canaanian. Now this word translated Canaanian looks very much like somebody from Canaan. We might assume that, but that's in fact wrong. The word here, Canaanian, is a transliteration, not translation, but transliteration of an Aramaic word that just means zealot. Zealot. Now you have to know a little bit about the political structure of ancient Judaism. But at the time of the ministry of the Lord Jesus, there are four political religious groups that are prominent in the culture. The, the first two would be very familiar to us, the Pharisees. That's a political religious group. They're very strict adherence to the law. They believe the law matters. If any of you are fans of the TV series that's been produced the last two years called The Chosen, the Pharisees figure prominently in the narrative of that TV series. They also figure prominently in the New Testament for that reason uh, because they are antagonistic to Jesus. He breaks their laws, their laws. Let me emphasize, Jesus never breaks the Bible's laws. He breaks the laws of man that have been derived from the Bible. There are many of those that are accustomed to us. That's a rabbit that got some meat on its bones, but we flushed him and we're going to let him run. He's, he's gone. We're gonna, I'd love to tell, tell you about the ways in which we have built laws unto ourselves that are not in the Bible. But they are laws nonetheless, because we say they are. The Pharisees were like that. And they were politically inclined. They believed that if they would, the people would just do the right thing, that God would usher in his kingdom. Then there's a second group called the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the priestly tribe, but actually they're a bunch of liberals. Theologically, they're liberals because they deny resurrection. The Sadducees believe that you die and you're done, which, by the way, is no hope whatsoever. Anybody sells you that kind of religion, run. Don't buy that because there's no hope in that whatsoever. Religion without the promise of eternal life is not religion. It's not the religion of the Bible, for sure. So the Sadducees were the priestly tribe. So the high priest, people like Caiaphas and Annas and others that would have been named. 
uh, are Sadducees, another political party, and they are rivals normally against the Pharisees because the Pharisees are strict and the Sadducees are loose. And so there's always a lot of banter back and forth between the so-called conservatives and the liberals, then as well as now. There's a third group that's not mentioned anywhere in the, in the Bible whatsoever, but we know from Jewish historians that there was a prominent group called the Essenes. That's basically an ascetic group that lived out in the, the, uh, the wilderness. It is suggested, perhaps, that John the Baptist, remember the guy that's wearing animal skins and eating locusts living in the wilderness, perhaps John the Baptist was affiliated with a group called the Essenes. Maybe so. Uh, we do know that their lifestyle was not dissimilar to John the Baptist, the Essenes, another political religious group. And there is a fourth group called the Zealots, the Zealots, or in this case, the Canaanites. Simon is a zealot. That's a political designation, which means then that he is a guy who believes that the Pharisees have it right. They're strict conservatives as regards the law. But the Pharisees have it wrong because the Pharisees are playing nice with the Romans. The zealots want nothing of it. The zealots are sort of like terrorists, domestic terrorists. They want nothing more than to see the Romans die and die in sorrow, die in pain, die in agony. They want nothing more than to humiliate the Romans because the Romans are not welcome in our country. The zealots. So there are, again, extra-biblical stories, historical accounts of zealots who ran what we today would call a, a, a guerrilla terrorist operation and guerrilla terrorist training bases and so forth. That is not a new phenomenon. It dates back at least as far as the first century, this political religious group called the zealots. Simon is a former domestic terrorist. Hmm. So why would that matter today? Because one of the other disciples is a guy named Matthew. who not only puts up with the Romans, he does business with them. And Jesus called them both to walk together, live together, and to give their lives together. That's not a small thing. We'll say more about that momentarily. There's a third man here called Thaddeus. Now, I read intentionally from the listing in Matthew because I prefer the name Thaddeus just because I like to say Thaddeus. By the way, that is his name, Thaddeus. It is suggested perhaps Thaddeus is a surname, his last name, maybe. Uh, he is... Uh, also called in the Gospel of Luke, in Luke's listing, he is called Judas. You might turn there with me. Luke chapter 6, verse 14. Luke chapter 6. 
verse 13, we can start there. When day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve whom he named apostles, Simon, whom he named Peter, Andrew his brother, James and John, Philip and Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon, who was called the Zealot, and Judas, the son of James, the son of James, Judas, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. So he is called Judas, this man called Thaddeus, in Luke chapter 6. Some have suggested that after the betrayal of Judas Iscariot, that it became fashionable to not, among Christians, to call a man Judas. I suspect that the historical evidence for that is scant. But nonetheless, when Matthew and Mark list their disciples' names, they choose the name Thaddeus, which may have been his surname. So his, his name may have been Judas Thaddeus. We don't know for sure, but he certainly had those two names. He's identified here as the son of James. So I prefer to call him Judas Thaddeus Jameson. That's a very Jewish name, by the way. Jameson. It's a very Jewish cultural name. Say, so, well, who was the first Jameson? I don't know. I don't know how far back James goes as a Jewish name, but it goes back to at least the Bible, first century here. So Judas Thaddeus Jameson, there you go. We don't know much about him, except we know more about him than we know about the other fellows, because in John 14, he speaks. I invite you to turn there. We're going to read this passage momentarily and then try to make two applications. This is the only reference to either of these men speaking in the New Testament. John 14, verse 15. 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. I should step back a minute if I could stop momentarily. Step back for just a moment and remind you that Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, has celebrated the Lord's Supper for the first time in John 13. John 14 is this famous teaching passage on the role of the Holy Spirit. If you want to know about the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Bible, there is no greater chapter than John 14. This is your ground zero for teaching on the Holy Spirit in the Bible, John 14. So he is teaching here on uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. John 15, I am the vine, you are the branches. John 16, again a passage on the Holy Spirit. John 17, the high priestly prayer. At the end of John 17, he goes out into the night and into the Garden of Gethsemane where he's betrayed by Judas. And John 18, the betrayal occurs. John 19, Jesus is crucified. This is the last day, the last night of Jesus' life. He's teaching his disciples. Let's read verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So the Holy Spirit has not yet come upon the disciples. That is going to occur at Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, but not yet. He continues, verse 18, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. 
but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in the Father, you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. All right, we must understand a little, uh, if you will, of the culture. We've said many times in this study of the 12 this summer that the disciples came out of a mindset that would have been typical in their day, that when the Messiah comes, he's going to put the Romans in the road. He's going to be a nationalistic, political, governmental, governmental militaristic figure. He's going to be king. He's going to be king like David was king. And David was a military man. He was a man who extended the borders. He was a man who put the enemies in flight. That's the way the Messiah is going to come. And he's going to come before the people, and he's going to be strong, and he's going to be powerful, and he's going to be popular, and he's going to be widespread in terms of his awareness, and everybody's going to know who he is. Contra that, Jesus says in this passage, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. I will ask the Father. He'll give you another helper, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Now, you're expecting the Messiah to come, and he's going to be this out front, visible person. And Jesus said, I'm the Messiah, but they're not going to see me. Does that sound like your Messiah? Probably not. I will tell you there are people, maybe in this room, maybe in this audience, certainly in our orbit of relationships, who reject Jesus because he doesn't meet their expectations. They demand Jesus be X. Jesus has to be more like this or more like that. And if Jesus doesn't meet my expectations, I'm out. Be careful with that, friend. Because God really doesn't take counsel from any of us. He asked that question rhetorically of Job. After Job had spent 37 chapters telling God, you know, I'm not sure you're getting this right. God asked him in chapter 38, who is this? that darkens counsel. Who is this? Who, who are you to give me advice? So here Thaddeus, he's a devoted follower. He's not an unbeliever, but he's unclear, which is the whole point of Jesus' teaching, isn't it? And we here today, we have to admit that we lack clarity on many things. We don't know why or why not, what and what for. We, we don't know so many things. 
And these things trouble us. These things disturb us. These things bring discomfort, not comfort. And we are not certain. Our, our, if you will, our foundation with God can get shaky real quick depending on the winds that are blowing around us. Thaddeus hears Jesus say, I'm going to be Messiah, but you will see me, but the world won't see me. And Thaddeus asked the question then, verse 22, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? How can you be Messiah if it's some sort of secret society? The Messiah's got to be this. This is the box that I have built for the Messiah, and you've got to fit in that box. And Jesus said, no, I don't. In fact, no, I won't. I won't fit in that box. He explains, in fact, that God is going to, through Jesus, he's going to manifest himself in a different way. He's going to do it internally. Which brings us to the two applications that I want to make this morning. We'll start here in John 14. I have a long explanation, so if you're writing things down, I'll uh, repeat this three or four times. Don't overreact if uh, I lose you. The kingdom of God will not come as a universal, conquering, political, or nationalistic force, but rather as an individual, heartfelt decision of persons one at a time. The first application I'll read it again. The kingdom of God will not come as a universal, conquering, political, or nationalistic force. If you think Jesus has died to make nations Christians, there's no biblical evidence to support your view. The kingdom of God will not come as a universal, conquering, political, or nationalistic force but rather as an individual, heartfelt decision of persons. Jesus came to change persons. And by virtue of persons, Jesus will change nations. But it will be person to person to person to person to person, one at a time. How do we know that? Because that's what it says right here. Verse 22, Judas said, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us, but not to the world. Jesus answered, if anyone loves me, singular, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him, and we will make our home with him. In other words, he says, uh, Judas, or in this case, Thaddeus, Thaddeus, you must understand that the kingdom of God is coming one person at a time. The kingdom of God is not going to come in some sort of universal uh, expression in the way that you're expecting. You're, you're the voice on your shoulder, so to speak, spit, whispering in your ear that's telling you the Messiah has got to be this nationalistic king and that he's got to be this political force. Th- that voice is wrong because I am the Messiah and I have come to invite you to love me. And that if you will receive me, I will Come in and I will love you and I will tabernacle with you. He he goes on in in verse 25 and says, These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I've said. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is going to continue the ministry of Christ. He goes on in this very paragraph to say, It is good for you that I leave. In fact, it is better for you that I leave. 
I will tell you, most Christians believe that if Jesus were here, it'd be better. In fact, the Bible says it is better that Jesus is not here because the Holy Spirit doesn't come until Jesus leaves. And so the only reason that we have comfort is because of the Holy Spirit. The only reason we have joy and peace in the midst of trials or sorrows or difficulty is because of the Holy Spirit. The only reason that we have understanding, if you will, the illumination of our minds, the conviction of sin, the convincing of righteousness, the convincing that Jesus is Messiah, the only reason any of that is true in my life or in yours is because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And if God does not bring his son home, the helper doesn't come. Where does the Bible say that? John 14. It's important that we understand that it's good for us that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father calling my very name before God. And the Holy Spirit convinces me that that is true because this word says it's true. Why do people not believe? I don't know the answer to that. You don't know the answer to that. Let's quit speculating as to why they don't believe. But the reality is they're blind. Why are blind people blind? How blind is blind? Very blind. You say, well, why can't they see? Because they're blind. Why don't they see? Because they're blind. Well, why are they blind? I don't know. I don't know, except that they are. And it's above my pay grade to decide why they are. But here's what I do know. That the only way blind people see is if Jesus gives them sight. And he does that by means of the word and the spirit. He does that by means of people telling them the word and calling upon the spirit. My prayer every Sunday as I come in here is, Lord, get me out of the way and make much of Jesus. And the only way that happens is through Jesus and his spirit. Jesus is praying for me right now as I preach. Jesus is praying for you as you listen to me preach. Not because of me, but because of Jesus. He wants you to know Jesus. He wants you to trust in Jesus. He wants you to believe in Jesus. He wants you to know that the Messiah is not some military military man. He's not some political man. He is the one who's come in your heart to love you and to rescue you from military men or political men or economic men or all kinds of tyranny and injustices in the world. The sorrow brought on by disease. We don't war against flesh and blood. Our problem's not COVID. Our problem's not cancer. Our problem's not anything like that. That's not our problem. Our problem is we've taken up residence on a battlefield. We live in a war zone. And there's a cosmic something-something going on. And I don't understand why or for how long. And neither does the Bible give us the answer to those. In fact, read the Psalms and you'll find that one of the most common questions of the psalmist is, how long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? How long, O Lord? I don't know. 
I just know that Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And he knows my name. And the Spirit lives within me. And he knows my name. He knows your name if you're a follower of Christ. Thaddeus or Judas asked this question in John 14. How are you going to be revealed to us but not to everyone? Because if you're going to be seen, you've got to be seen by everybody. Jesus said, no, no, I don't. Because you'll see with the eyes of faith and you'll live your life as if you see me. <laughs> Look back at verse 17, John 14, 17. Even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. Why does the world not believe? Because they don't see what you see. They don't know what you know. That's why Paul asks us rhetorically in Romans chapter 10, how shall they hear without someone tells them? The answer is rhetorical. Of course they won't. They won't hear, they won't see, they won't believe unless someone tells them. We have to tell them. Think about these disciples. We don't know anything about these three men except this one sentence from Judas, not Iscariot, Judas Thaddeus. That's all we know about these three men. But we do know that all of these men were gifted by God and sent out. That all of these men were sent out to the nations. And they were all given extraordinary powers to heal the sick and cast out demons and to proclaim the release of captives. They were all given this assignment and they were sent out. As the Lord left this earth and the Holy Spirit falls upon them at Pentecost, they were empowered to go and tell and go and tell and go and tell. And we don't know except perhaps from history books where these men ended up going. None of them apparently stayed in Jerusalem. They went north, south, east, and west. They traveled far, far distances with the gospel in order that the world would see and know. Because that's God's way. God intends that his disciples, whether it's the 12 or this bunch, go and tell. There is no other way. There is no other plan. There is no other method. Go and tell. And if you're not going, help other people go. And make sure they go and go and go and go. And until we die, let us make sure that the folks behind us are getting the message. After I'm gone, you're in the catbird seat to make sure you keep going. Don't quit. Keep going. Until the Lord returns, the world needs to know. How shall they know if you're not here? Oh, I got a plan. It turns out, Thaddeus, it turns out, Judas, not Iscariot, it turns out, you're the plan. You're the plan. I'm going to come into your life. I'm going to change you, draw near to you, give you my Holy Spirit, and the helper is going to tell them through you, you're the plan. 
So the kingdom of God will not come as a universal conquering political or nationalistic force, but rather as an individual heartfelt decision of purpose, persons rather, one at a time. It doesn't matter today whether your name is Simon or Andrew, James, John, Matthew, Bartholomew, Nathaniel, Judas, not Iscariot, Simon the Zealot. doesn't matter what your name is. It doesn't matter if your name is today Greg or Bill or John or Sue or Mary or any other name in this room. It doesn't matter what your name is. The only, the only name that matters is Jesus. And the rest of us just get to carry his name everywhere we go. We need to get busy. Time's wasted. And the world needs Jesus as bad today as it's ever been in my life. That brings us to the second point I want to make quick. And that is that the life change of a Christian is a very real thing. You remember I mentioned that Simon is a zealot. And he's called to be a disciple with Matthew, who's a tax collector. We just, we just cannot begin to calculate how counterculture that is. You say, well, you know, these are people that are following Jesus. Jesus is such a good guy, got such strength of personality that all these people are just going to get along. Really? Are you a real person? You think that? You actually think people just get along because of their relationships with some sort of common figure? No, they don't. No, they, they don't get along because there's a good person in the mix and there are two bad people also in the mix. But what we see with the calling of these disciples, in particular this one, Simon the Zealot, that the life change of a Christian is a very real thing. I dare say that there are people in this room that believe that there are certain people that are either too far gone or too messed up or too broken or too poisoned or too hard or too bitter, too angry, too selfish, too narcissistic that God can't do anything, that God won't do anything. Because if God were going to do it, I mean, the, the guy is 30 years old. He's 40. He's 50. He's 80. If God were going to do it, wouldn't he have done it by now? Maybe. But you are now counseling God. You're telling God when. I don't recommend that, by the way. But the life change of a Christian is a very real thing. And we know that because a zealot doesn't hang out with people who make deals with Rome. Simon has been trained as a zealot. He has been coached his entire adult life, perhaps his adolescence as well. Maybe his father was a zealot. Who knows? But Simon has been coached and trained to be an angry man, to, to be an evil man, if need be, to be a murderous man. Now, we don't know any of this about Simon specifically, but he's a zealot, and we do know the M.O. of zealots, and we do know the M.O. of tax collectors, and they are not the same. And yet, 
Jesus brought them into the same mix. It's not supposed to work, and yet it does. And the reason it does is because the life change of a Christian is a very real thing. Who can change these who are lost? Who can give sight to the blind? Who can cause the lame to get up and walk? Who can cause the the demon-possessed person to be set free? Who can change people in the manner which they need to be changed? Only God. Only God. In this case, only the Lord Jesus Christ and His Spirit. And He does so. He calls Simon a zealot to follow Him. And He puts him in a very explosive situation. And yet, apparently that situation does not end in insurrection, does not end in murder, does not end in anger, does end in some measure of envy. The Bible tells us that the disciples were arguing among themselves at times about various things, including who's the greatest. It turns out they're real men with real problems. People you know are real people with real problems. And the only antidote for them is the same antidote that we find for these men, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me remind you of the power of God. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, and we conclude here. Galatians chapter 5, verse 16. The Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians, people who are familiar with political parties, uh, envy and slander. He writes very harshly to this church in the first chapter. But now in chapter 5, he concludes or comes to conclusion by telling us these words. I say, verse 16, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You might underline that verse. You certainly ought to star it. If you walk by the Spirit, you won't be who you were. You'll stop doing stuff. You'll stop saying stuff. You'll stop feeling stuff if you walk by the Spirit. How important is the Spirit? More than you know. Without the Spirit, you're just who you were. But because of the Spirit, you're different. Notice what he says about what you were, verse 17. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, for these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do, but... If you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are, and here is a laundry list of terrible things, hurtful things, harmful things, stinky things, the kinds of things that smudge your reputation and destroy your relationships. The works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, that's the Greek word pornaya, which we get the word pornography. If there was a men's conference instead of a church service, we'd stop here a minute.
There are many things that destroy a man. That eat him up. Even own him. And this is one. But these are the deeds of the flesh. At war against the spirit. And if you walk by the spirit. You put to death. These things. Sexual immorality. Impurity. Sensuality. Idolatry. Sorcery. And here's a list of things that cause trouble in church. Enmity. Strife. Jealousy. Fits of anger. Rivalries. Dissensions. Divisions. Envy. You say, Brother Greg, that, that's not just church, admittedly. But church kind of ground zero for me, right? Envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. In other words, this is only part of the list. There's a, there's a, there are more things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, that's a very important conjunction, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no prohibition, no law, no denying and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. I would ask you today, do you live by the Spirit? If you're a believer, the answer to that has to be yes. Are you alive in Christ? Yes. Okay, therefore, you have been born again by the Spirit. You must be born of water and the Spirit, Jesus told Nicodemus, a prominent Pharisee. You must be. You must be. So if you live by the Spirit, let us walk by the Spirit. That's an imperative, a command. Leave here today and walk by the Spirit. How did Simon and Matthew and all the rest of these characters get along? The answer is because the Holy Spirit of God is just that powerful. So what's the secret for your problem and my problem and our problems? What's the secret for divisions and dissensions and envy and rivalry and drunkenness and sexual promiscuity? What's the secret for strife and jealousy and sorcery and idolatry? What's the secret for things like these? The only answer is the Spirit of God found by means of the Son of God. I've come this morning to invite you to come to Christ and having come to Christ to know that coming to Christ you have received the Spirit of God and you have no excuse you have no pretense. You have no crutch to say, I can't. Oh, but you can. Not you, but him in you. You can. You must. We must. And where it's not true, we must repent. We must turn away from that junk, that stuff, that garbage. We must turn away from that. And we must say, let us embrace Christ. Because Christ is our only hope. In life and death, my only hope. And yours also. Let us put it all away. And let us run to Christ today. God can take a zealot. And make him a friend of a tax collector. God can take you. And make you a friend of God. Wow. That's real. Let's pray.
God, thank you this morning for your grace upon us. We love you so. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to believe. Help us to follow you. We love you so. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. If you're here today and would like to talk to someone about making a decision for Christ,